Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And if you haven't already guessed, this is our annual Christmas episode. (laughs) It's here again. And it's a bit of a tradition for us now, isn't it, Nadia? It certainly is. And we are treating you, our listeners, to Esther Rothboom's live keynote address back in 2021 in our Appearance Matters 9 online conference hosted by the Centre for Appearance Research. Yes, and in case you're wondering about the tradition, as tradition has it, we have our Christmas headgear. So Jade has got her Santa hat on and I, dear listener, am wearing... Now, I need to get this off to fully explain... It's um two little two Santas two Santas on a on a headband, but you may need to see a photo. How do you? Describe? Yeah, with a spring, so they're particularly bouncy. I might add two bouncy Santas on my head. Here we are, and they are delightful, and they just look like a joy on Nadia's head. So I can say completely festive themed this month. And it, to be honest, old habits do die hard. This is a tradition <laughs> we like to do every year, isn't it, Nadia? Um, I can say I am very happy that we're doing this Christmas episode. And we actually are recording in person. Yes. I do remember that last year we were talking about how it was deeply saddening, saddening that we weren't able to record our special Christmas episode in person. We were in our homes separately. Um, so now we're here with our headgear and all the full works. Yeah, so cheers to that. Cheers. <laughs> and cheers to you, our listeners, as well. It's always a pleasure to hear how many of you every year when we, you know, look back, uh, are enjoying listening and find this podcast so useful. Yeah, agreed. And on that note, and you may know what's coming, we would like to ask you, our dear listeners, to, if you haven't already, please, please, please rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you prefer but preferably apple Podcasts. Yeah. that seems to make the most influence on the ratings and and things it can be your festive gift to us yeah love it it's a shameless request but i mean it we really appreciate your support it makes a difference and it doesn't cost you a penny and that's the kind of gift we all love giving when we're not spending any money so. <laughs> it's the thought that counts and the ratings and we're not adding to any landfill so there you go winning all round and um yeah so before we talk ourselves into 2022 which love the ring of 2022 yeah, yeah 22 does feel special my i was born on the 22nd so i like a 22 but let's now hand over to our fabulous guest for the month Good idea, Jade. So, Esther has very recently retired, but was a professor and chair of women's studies at San Diego State University and was also an LGBTQ studies advisor. Esther's work and writing focused on LGBTQ relationships as well as on weight stigma. So, lots of great important contributions to the field. And you may remember Esther on a past episode. So, you may have to have a little dig in the podcast archives. I love that. Yep. Uh, do look back and have a listen. And Esther is a big name in this research area. So, we have her keynote titled, Being Seen, Queer Appearances – 
which taps into appearance issues among LGBTQ communities, and it was just such fun and, and a fascinating talk. It really was. I can't wait for you all to hear it. Esther discusses some fascinating issues, for example, how appearance pressures vary from people who are sexually involved with men versus who are sexually involved with women. Uh, Mini spoiler here, but the research suggests that those who are sexually involved with men often feel greater pressure to conform to appearance norms versus those who are sexually involved with women. Yeah, it was very interesting. And Esther also talks about dating websites and how people describe appearances there. And on that note, we do have a couple of episodes on Mm. dating as well. So do link back to that if you're interested. And she talks about terms such as butch and femme. Yeah, that are that are common within the LGBTQ community. So I think that's enough spoilers from us. Let's not delay any further and play Esther's keynote for you. Hello, everybody. So my talk is on queer appearances, being seen. And this is what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, First of all, it's important to talk in some detail about the terminology of gender minorities and sexual minorities, because appearance issues are different depending on people's identities. I'll also talk about looking queer in order to find queer communities queer appearance over historical time and across cultures, the intersection of gender and sexual orientation on body image, and queer appearance as a corporate market. So just to begin in terms of gender minorities, um, people often differentiate the terms sex and gender so that sex refers to biology. For example, there's a sex difference in baldness especially among white men. And gender uh, usually refers to cultural or environmental issues. So for example, there is a gender difference in knitting ability. Uh, People are not born knowing how to knit uh, and knitting uh, is taught, but um, in many countries, uh, knitting is more common among women than men. But there's also an age difference in knitting among women. When I ask my students to raise their hand if they know how to knit, very few hands go up. But when I ask if their mothers or grandmothers knew how to knit, uh, many hands uh, go up. So um, it's important here to immediately talk about the intersection. That is, when we talk about sex differences, it isn't just, um, you know, female sex and male sex, it intersects, as I mentioned, with race and ethnicity. It's white men who tend to have baldness. And similarly with knitting, it isn't just that women knit more than men, but there's also an intersection with age. Older women um, were taught how to knit than women today. So these um, issues are not independent of each other. It's always important to consider the intersectional perspective. I also want to introduce the term intersex, which refers to individuals who are born with variations in sex characteristics. Here I've presented two athletes, uh, Castro Semenya, um, an athlete from South Africa, and Duti Chand, an athlete from uh, India. Gender identity refers to uh, one's own sense of one's um, gender, Um, I am, a boy, I am a girl, etc. 
A cisgender is a fairly new term that refers to gender identity being the same as sex assigned at birth. So an individual who was assigned female at birth and still identifies as a woman would be cisgender. Transgender refers to individuals who do not fully identify with their sex assigned at birth. It may not mean that they were assigned male at birth and now they identify as a woman. There can also be variations. They may have gender that's more fluid, gender identity that's more fluid, or feel that really gender doesn't refer well uh, to them, or that they have multiple uh, gender identities. And then gender expression refers to um, how people read us, our behavior, appearance, mannerisms, voice pitch, etc., that are associated with uh, gender. I also want to say that the terms uh, trans woman and trans man are used today, replacing other terms that were used in the past. Uh, also, um, trans feminine refers to someone who identifies to some degree with femininity and trans masculine for someone who identifies to some degree with uh, masculinity. Sometimes you'll see the word trans followed with an asterisk, which refers to the whole transgender umbrella, which can include um, being gender non-binary. So individuals who are gender non-binary may experience their gender as changing over time. They may conceive of gender on a continuum. They may believe that there are more categories than male or female, or just question the whole concept of gender itself. Other terms instead of gender non-binary are terms like genderqueer, agender, gender variant, gender flexible, gender non-conforming, or neutroids. I also want to point out that not every language uses gendered pronouns. For example, Mandarin and Tagalog do not. Uh, you may know of other languages. Then, of course, there are languages that are highly gendered. In English, um, in the past, when people wanted to avoid he or she, they would use pronouns like z or here or zem. Now, increasingly, people use the word they for the single individual. This is Esther, they are from California, for example. Um, additionally, uh, words that are gendered, such as Latina and Latino, are now replaced in writing by the more gender neutral term Latinx. That's how it's pronounced, Latinx. And you may have seen the term MX, mix or mux, uh, which has replaced Mr. and Ms. And by the way, this is useful because on the internet, uh, you may not know based on someone's name, um, how they, what their pronouns are, <clears throat> whether they would like to be addressed as Mr. or Ms. And so mux is actually kind of useful there. Western societies have very binary concepts of gender, but I want to point out that other cultures have a long history of gender fluidity. For example, in many North American indigenous cultures in the past, uh, there were people whose gender changed, uh, sometimes in early childhood, who might have special spiritual or healing powers, who often dressed in the clothing of the other gender, who married someone of the other sex, and whose gender might change again uh, over time. Um, there were many different words for these um, individuals in the many, many languages and indigenous cultures. 
But today, um, contemporary Native Americans have reclaimed the term two-spirit to emphasize the spirituality that was an important aspect of what were called women-men or men-women in the past. Now, other cultures outside North America have current terms for genders outside the binary. The kinar or kinner, also known as hydra in South Asia, are officially considered a third gender in India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Nepal. And some countries, uh, some cultures have an intermediate um, sex, such as the bakla in the Philippines, fuying, also known as katoi in Thailand, travesti in Brazil, and anabe in Japan. So let me talk about sexual minorities. Uh, sexual orientation, also referred to as sexual identity or sexuality, refers to the gender or genders to which one is sexually, romantically, or emotionally attracted. You may have seen the acronym LGBTQ referring to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. Or possibly you may have even seen LGBTQ+. And here the plus sign refers to other terms or sometimes called emerging or newer identities, um, newer terms such as intersex, two-spirit, asexual, questioning, etc. <clears throat> now, um, sexual orientation is not a un unified identity. There are various dimensions. For example, sexual identity, I am a lesbian, sexual behavior, I have sex with women, sexual fantasies, I fantasize about women, membership in the LGBTQ communities, I march at the gay pride march, things like that. And in fact, um, I think the general public often assumes that these dimensions are highly intercorrelated. That is somebody who identifies, let's say as a bisexual man, uh, also has sex with men and women, fantasies about men and women, is involved in bisexual community groups, etc. And that is actually not true. These dimensions are weakly intercorrelated. They really are not highly interrelated. Um, many, I think three decades ago, Jessica Morris, my former graduate student and I, uh, did a study based on 2,400 sexual minority women, of which a quarter were women of color, and found that these dimensions were only moderately correlated. They were most highly correlated for African-American and Latina women, but even there, the correlations were only moderate, and they were very weakly correlated for Native American, Asian American, and um, white women. And another researcher, uh, Lauman and colleagues, have also found this. And now there is a much more sophisticated understanding that sexuality considers, uh, consists really of multiple dimensions. Now, um, as these definitions imply, when you talk about sexual orientation, any terms, they are heavily dependent on gender. And that's why I went through in such detail the concept of gender minorities. And specifically, they're very dependent on binary gender. Are you attracted to women? Are you attracted to men? Or are you attracted to both women and men? 
The newer term, uh, pansexual, also plurisexual and omnisexual, in contrast to monosexual, um, refers to attraction to people regardless of their sex or gender identity. So that can include attraction to people who identify as women or men or gender non-binary. And asexual refers to people who do not feel sexual attraction to others. Uh, some do feel romantic attraction, whereas others are aromantic. Now, the acronym LGBT is now often replaced by queer to describe all non-normative sexual and gender identities. And Queer, um, I must say, is now rarely used in the research literature because actually it is such a broad term that it's hard for researchers to really pin it down. <clears throat> for example, if you think about queer as referring to all non-normative sexualities, then technically a heterosexual couple who chooses not to have children or who chooses not to get married may be considered queer in the sense that they are not they're doing something that is not normative. So if you think of queer as that broad, it's difficult to use it in uh, research, but it is used in various ways uh, in general discourse. Sometimes people use it as an umbrella term for all identity labels because it's a one syllable word and therefore easier to say than LGBTQ+. Uh, sometimes it's a more radical statement. Uh, LGBT is seen as more assimilationist for example, uh, queer people might say that, you know, I am not in favor of marriage for anyone. I have a more radical perspective. Um, and also the academic discipline of queer theory um, has arisen more in the humanities, I would say, than in the social or hard sciences. My research on sexual minorities from a population-based um, sample in the U.S. who identify as queer uh, compared to those who identify as LGBT or actually LGB, um, found that people who identify as queer are more likely to be cisgender women or gender non-binary. That is, they're less likely to be cisgender men. Uh, they tend to be younger and more highly educated than those who identify as LGB. So now let me talk about queer appearance. Uh, so um, first of all, I want to point out that Members of some minority groups grow up in minority communities and only learn about the majority community when they enter school. Let's use as an example, uh, let's say the Pakistan immigrant community in Los Angeles. So if you are a child growing up in that community, you speak Urdu at home with your parents. Possibly anybody who comes to visit the house, anytime you go and visit family or friends, they are from the Pakistan immigrant community, they're speaking Urdu, possibly your parents listen to um, radio programs or blogs uh, from Pakistan, the um, cooking and the, um, tele, you know, the, the sort of stories you hear, the books you see may all be in Urdu. And so it's not until you go to school that you actually meet children from other groups <clears throat> including the majority community, where you learn English um, and you learn about the majority culture. But that is different for people who are LGBTQ, who rarely grow up with parents who are sexual or gender minorities. In fact, they uh, grow up in the dominant heterosexual and cisgender 
uh, culture. That is, even if, for example, they're African-American, their parents uh, typically are heterosexual and cisgender. So they need to find the minority community in contrast to other minority groups. And that process relies heavily on appearance. That is knowing what to look like and knowing what others look like. So you can find people. Um, you have to be careful because if you tell another child in school that you're attracted to them, you know, that, uh, that child can be very upset or even aggressive. So you need to kind of know what does your community look like. And this was especially important before the internet. Of course, now there are many internet sites telling people where to go and what to look for. You may have seen um, this controversial article that came out in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology that was called Deep Neural Networks Are More Accurate Than Humans at Detecting Sexual Orientation from Facial Images. What the authors did here is they selected images from US dating websites based on the gender of the partner they were looking for. So if somebody said, I'm a man looking for men and had their picture there, the assumption was this was a gay or bisexual man. And if somebody said, I'm looking for women, uh, they would assume if it was a sexual orientation dating site that they were a lesbian or bisexual woman. So given just one image, computers could correctly distinguish between gay and heterosexual men in 81% of cases and lesbian and heterosexual women in 71% of cases. And this increased when they presented five uh, images. Uh, human judges were less accurate, 61% for image of a man and 54% for image of a woman. I mean, this is controversial, but it does a kind of raise some interesting questions. What was the computer looking for? Um, you know, what is it, um, you know, um, that the computer here was looking for? And you might have some uh, speculations. So I want to talk about queer appearance over historical time. What does it mean to look queer? So in the 1920s in the U.S., a red tie was a signal that a man was queer. Wearing a red tie was a sign of extreme daring. You just didn't have that much color in your tie if you were um, a straight man. Now, of course, um, men who are world leaders wear red ties. And so it no longer signals, I am a gay man. Men who wore an earring were considered gay in the past with the exception of some sailors. Sailors sometimes wore earrings even if they were heterosexual, but now um, heterosexual men uh, wear them. Until the 1960s in the US, it was illegal for people to wear clothing of the other gender. You could be arrested if you were a woman, for example, wearing a necktie or men's jeans. Uh, you could be arrested if you were a man wearing a skirt or a dress. Now, um, heterosexual women wear men's clothing. And just recently, the New York Times had this article called The Boys in Their Summer Dresses. Gender fluidity enters its next phase as men increasingly step out in skirts and frocks. Uh, so again, times change. I also want to talk about the terms butch and femme. Um, lesbians and bisexual women have used the terms butch and femme for over 100 years, 
But the meanings of these terms are vague, and this has also been one of my areas of research. So in the past, butch and femme uh, referred to appearance and clothing. Butches wore mannish clothing, femmes wore feminine clothing. It referred to relationships. So if you were a butch, your partner had to be a femme and vice versa. And it also referred to permanency. If you were a femme, you were always a femme. If you were a butch, you were always a butch. Now, with the advent of second wave feminism in the 1970s, the um, norm became this kind of androgynous um, look. So lesbians uh, would wear, uh, as you can see here, a lot of denim um, and and, um, plaid and um, kind of work shirts. Uh, They often looked like each other. It was kind of hard to tell who was who in a lesbian couple. They had short hair. Uh, They wore um, Birkenstocks or sandals or flat shoes with flat uh, heels. Uh, And lesbians who still used butch and femme terms or roles uh, were termed uh, politically incorrect. And then in the 1980s, the butch and femme identities were reclaimed. Now um, you can be a butch who changes to a femme um, or butches can get involved with butches or femmes with femmes. Um, Now in my uh, longitudinal couples uh, research, we uh, did ask about butch femme identity and we found that butches do tend to get involved with femmes whereas um, women who identify as androgynous, that is neither butch nor femme, tend to get involved with women who identify as androgynous. But again, I want to point out that whether you're talking about the historical roles for butch and femme or the androgynous roles during the women's liberation movement or the reclaiming of butch and femme today, notice how much appearance here plays a role, kind of identifying who you are. Uh, Are you butch or femme or neither? Now, coming out as femme uh, was difficult for sexual minority women, given that, as Blair and Hoskin have said, masculinity is the established norm of desirability in the lesbian and bisexual communities. So women who identified as femme uh, felt invisible and experienced what the authors called femphobia, you know, this sort of aversion to women who were femme, preferring women who were butch. Um, They uh, experienced negative reactions to their femme identity uh, by the queer community, uh, by their partners or uh, potential partners. Now, butch identities, which might be more valued within the sexual minority women's communities, often had a, a difficult reaction in the mainstream community. That is women who appeared butch or gender non-conforming are more stigmatized by society at large and more likely to experience harassment and discrimination, Levitt and Horn found. So you can see here that this is complicated in terms of how you appear um, in the sexual minority women's communities versus in society at large. Now, interestingly, in the popular media, if you watch any television program that portrays um, a lesbian couple, often there is kind of this mild butch and femme version. Uh, Interestingly, I have found that even the woman who is the butch in the couple looks pretty feminine, much more feminine than you would find if you actually went into a lesbian bar, for example, and looked at the women who 
um, identified as butches. Also, interestingly, often the woman who identified, who is portrayed in the media as butch, basically has dark hair, and the one who identifies as femme has blonde hair and longer hair. So you have one woman, the butch, who has um, you know shorter hair and darker hair, and the femme has blonder hair and longer hair. It doesn't really reflect uh, reality, but this is how women are portrayed. And again, that's very important. If you think about all the young girls and um, adolescents who are watching these programs and learning about what it means to look like a sexual minority woman. Now, appearance for gay men has changed also over time from men being portrayed as feminine, uh, sometimes called fairies or pansies uh, way back, to the more hyper-masculine look uh, today. Uh, Tom of Finland is an artist who has produced several thousand illustrations of homoerotic art, where he portrays um, gay men with exaggerated masculinity. They're often portrayed as sailors or policemen, uh, things like that. Uh, as you can see, they have tremendous musculature. He also has very explicit um, erotic art. Again, you know, this sort of change here historically from feminine to hyper-masculine. Now, uh, the gay male bear culture is one part of the gay communities. Men who identify as bears uh, tend to be hairy. They have beards and, um, and uh, body hair. Um, they often, um, you know, are muscular, um, they may wear leather, and so uh, there is a bear community. They often are heavier, bigger, um, which is also interesting uh, because I'll get more to that later, but there's often, you know, strong standards about weight in the gay male communities. Is there a bisexual look? Um, when I ask my students about that, they're kind of hesitant. They don't really know uh, what a bisexual woman or man um, would look like. Um, you know, are bisexual women, um, do they appear more like lesbians or more like heterosexual women? Does it depend on the context, for example? Um, my research on sexual minority women's attitudes about butch femme in the current century uh, indicated that lesbians consider bisexual women to be femmes. So they would often say, I don't know a bisexual butch, but they were actually wrong. The bisexual women in my sample uh, tended to identify as either um, or both, uh, butch or femme or neither or in between. So um, the stereotype is that bisexual women are femmes. Uh, actually in reality, that is not the case for bisexual women uh, themselves. Now, in terms of transgender appearance, um, the early images were what are now, what would then be considered transsexual, uh, often um, um, transsexual, or what we now would call trans women. For example, Christine uh, Jorgensen uh, here on the left, tennis star Renee Richards, former Olympian Caitlyn Jenner, who is a lot in the news currently. Um, but today there is more flexible appearance on the trans spectrum and among gender non-binary people. There is no asexual look. Uh, I've done research on asexual identified individuals and find that many identify as gender non-binary. But in terms of appearance, uh, there doesn't seem to be an asexual look. And that's interesting because it may be for asexual people who are not really interested 
in getting sexually involved with or even romantically involved with other people, they may not really care how they look because they are not signaling their appearance as asexual. Now, since the 1980s, there's been greater diversity in the LGBTQ communities as queer images become more visible and queer communities become more multicultural. So we are exposed to a much broader spectrum of what queer appearance looks like. The um, gay and lesbian baby boom uh, resulted in images of pregnant lesbians and same-sex couples um, rearing children. Rachel Epstein has written an article called Butches with Babies and says, you know, they just don't make butch maternity clothes. What does it mean when you are a butch, but also visibly pregnant, for example? And again, it's important to look at an intersectional perspective. How does um, queer appearance intersect with race and ethnicity, age, uh, disability, ability, uh, and, other, um, and other dimensions. For example, Jennifer Lyle and uh, co-authors have written the article Beauty on the Borderland on being black, lesbian, and beautiful. And what they point out is that there are different norms in the African-American and the lesbian bisexual communities, for example, around hair. So in the sexual minority communities, women are supposed to have short hair. In the uh, African-American communities, you're supposed to have longer hair and braid it, but you can't just change your hair from one day to the next. Um, you know, you can't just um, cut your hair and assume that, you know, it will grow back. So again, it, it involves, you know, some difficult um, uh, decisions. I also just want to bring up some cultural differences. Um, Britain uh, tends to use pink for example, the Pink Pound or Pink Magazines, you just don't see that in the US. Um, in the US, um, there is um, typically the, the use of purple or lavender. And again, it's been interesting to see how even publishing companies have learned this uh, early on when they would publish a book on lesbians. Uh, it took them a while to learn that it's more visible if the, co the cover is purple, for example. And now what you see across much of the world are rainbow images. And so clothing, but also bumper stickers of cars or things like that uh, symbolize, um, you know, that this is a sexual gender minority topic. As you can see from the PowerPoint slides I'm using where I have the rainbow image down the left column here. Now, um, when somebody expresses the gender of the other gender, they're often viewed as non-heterosexual. So if somebody, if a woman, for example, is dressed in, um, you know, sort of tailored, a tailored suit, um, or a man wears a skirt, they're often assumed to be non-heterosexual. So again, it is somewhat still a statement, although norms are changing. I also want to talk a bit about the intersection of gender identity and sexual orientation on body image because um, I really have two areas of research. One of them is looking at LGBTQ plus uh, communities and relationships and mental health. And the other one is um, the area of weight stigma, which is now called fat studies. So in the 1980s, there were two articles that many, many people have cited, and that is that Siri Dworkin wrote an article saying women are told how to look 
and lesbians are women. And therefore, lesbians too are going to be dieting and obsessed with weight and wishing to be thinner and so on. And then around, I think it was one year later, Laura Brown wrote an article where she said, actually, lesbian communities are more accepting of diversity, including awareness of body oppression. Now, they can't both be right. So it was interesting to see who was right, Sari Dworkin or Laura Brown. I also want to add another issue, and that is, you know, one could argue that it's being sexually involved with men that influences concerns about appearance. That means that it is heterosexual women and gay men, that is people involved with men, who would be more focused on weight and dieting than people involved with women, that is heterosexual men and lesbians. And um, there is some research to show that. In fact, uh, Siri Dworkin and Laura Brown are both right. And that is many studies have found that gender is more salient than sexual orientation. That is people who identify as women, regardless of their sexual orientation, are more focused on weight than are people who identify as men. But um, on some dimensions, and a number of studies have found this, it is heterosexual women and gay men who are more focused on weight and dieting than heterosexual men and lesbians. Um, I also want to point out that you can do a lot of research looking at personal ads or today uh, dating apps because there people have photographs and they also tell you something about themselves and they also tell you who they're looking for. Um, and basically this research has found that men are viewers, women are objects. So what do men and women offer? Meaning what do they say about themselves? And what do they request, you know, saying what they're looking for in personal ads, men uh, tend to focus on physical characteristics, women tend to focus on psychological characteristics. So women looking for men offer physical characteristics. This is how much I weigh. This is how tall I am. This is my hair color and search for what they're looking for in men is financial security, occupation and sincerity. Men looking for women offer their occupation. No, that's what women are looking for. And they search for physical characteristics, cannot weigh more than whatever. Men looking for men also focus on physical characteristics and women looking for women focus on hobbies and interests. So this is a very interesting area of uh, research. Now, there is not a lot of research on bisexual women and men and body image. And I think this is really fascinating because many, but not all, bisexual people may have been sexually involved with both women and men, not at the same time, but sequentially. It would be interesting to ask them when you are involved with women versus when you are involved with men, is there a difference in how you feel about your own body or your own uh, weight? And there has been some qualitative research in this area looking at bisexual women by one of my former graduate students, finding that yes, indeed, when bisexual women reflect back on their relationships with women, they felt more comfortable about their own bodies than when they were involved with men. Now, in terms of transgender um, appearance and weight, uh, there's a wonderful quote by Bear Bergman in the Fat Studies Reader, which I edited. And Bear has the following uh, quote, 
Whether I'm fat or not depends on whether the person or people looking at me believe me to be a man or a woman. As a man, I'm a big dude, but not outside the norm for such things. As a big guy, I'm big enough to make miscreants or troublemakers decide to take their hostility elsewhere, big enough to walk calmly through the streets because I'm safe unless there's no easier target. As a woman, I am revolting. I'm not only unattractively mannish, but also grossly fat. The clothes I can fit into at the local big girl stores tend to fit around the neck and then get bigger as they go downward, which results in a festive butch in a bag look, all the rage, nowhere, ever. So this is a great quote, and I also think this is a wonderful area for research, asking people who identify as transgender and who may have uh, either uh, an appearance where it's you know, androgynous or people who may have changed gender, asking them, after all, it's the same body. Um, what was it like when you were read as a man versus what is it like when you're read as a woman, and how does that affect your own um, comfort with your body and body image? And I want to also talk about queer as a corporate market uh, in capitalist countries, most especially in the US. You know, um, um, capitalism is everything. It, it's around us all the time. It's in the air we breathe. And so it's fascinating to look at um, the how the market, how the corporate sector um, looks at um, sexuality and uh, gender identity. So in the past, the um, corporate market had a difficult dilemma. The, on the one hand, they want to infiltrate every possible market. When um, diet sodas were first introduced in the US, they came in a pink can called Tab, uh, produced by Coca-Cola. And then when most women were drinking diet soda in the form of Tab, um, they wanted to infiltrate the male market, but a pink can they did not think would do it, so they invented Diet Coke. And then of course they infiltrated the children's market and, and so on. Um, but when it comes to advertising to queer communities, the corporate market has the dilemma that they don't want to offend their conservative um, consumers. So early on in the 1980s, for example, the early markets uh, were um, often from alcohol and cigarette companies, figuring that already conservatives might consider these markets sort of amoral anyway, so why not advertise to um, the queer community? On the left here is a billboard that was put up in San Francisco in the gay neighborhood called the Castro. And um, this is from Absolute Vodka. Uh, if you Google Absolute Vodka, they have poured, no pun intended, millions and millions of dollars into their advertising, often very creative and usually in the shape of a vodka bottle. So you can see if you think of a vodka bottle sideways, that's what this billboard shows. Now, this um, billboard used actual objects. In other words, this was not a picture or a photograph. These were actual items placed high up above the Castro, and it showed different closets that showed, you know, you can see vaguely rainbow-colored clothes or a closet that had clearly butch clothes or uh, a gay man with skirts and dresses. And because it was high up, they had to make each item, including the clothes hangers, much bigger so people driving by uh, could see it. And then again on the right, uh, Virginia Slims, which is a cigarette company, was one of the early ones to 
uh, target um, women and including feminists um, and, and of course also the uh, lesbian community. Danae Clark has written an article called Commodity Lesbianism, where she says that what advertisers are looking for are groups that are identifiable, accessible, measurable, and profitable. So historically, uh, LGBTQs have not been viewed as financially powerful. They were not a group that advertisers targeted. Even today, uh, there's more focus on gay men who are viewed as wealthy than other sexual minorities, even though my own research looking at um, LGBTs and their um, heterosexual and cisgender brothers and sisters does not find a difference between gay men and heterosexual brothers in income. Um, second wave lesbians were against fashion and beauty products. So it was no good advertising, let's say makeup or dresses to uh, lesbians. But uh, even today, uh, ads often use code. That is, they use images that you might recognize right away if you are a member of the um, queer community, but it might go right over your head if you are not. And I can remember the very first time I noticed this, uh, it was an, uh, an advertisement in the magazine called The New Yorker, and it was for the clothing company, Eddie Bauer. Um, and it showed a woman wearing a ski jacket or parka. And the, the slogan said, every woman has to come out sometimes. And I thought, oh, my goodness, they used come out. It didn't. And if my mother had read that, she might have said, yeah, every woman has to go outside into the snow sometimes. So it was very clever wording that caught my eye, certainly as a lesbian, but would not have caught the eye of the general public. And if somebody had written in and said, I can't believe you're targeting lesbians, they would have said, what do you mean? We just said every woman has to go outside sometimes. So they kind of had that defense mechanism there. There is actually a um, website that um, keeps track of commercials and um, uh, ads focused on the queer community called, I think it's called commercialcloset.org. Um, we're out there with you traveling the world. This is for a AAA is a uh, American Automobile Association. Uh, when friends are family, sort of, again, this, this play on words of family of friends. In the life, in the Bronx, need free help to quit smoking. Uh, in the life is a slogan meaning often uh, targeted at the um, African-American or um, ethnic minority communities. Um, but um, if somebody's reading this who is not queer, they may not, um, they may not get it when the only thing that needs straightening is your teeth. Again, a very clever play on words. And here, uh, the New York Times uh, a few years ago had an article about clothing for gender non-binary consumers called For Capitalism, Every Social Leap Forward is a Marketing Opportunity. Brands are now racing to capture the market of young people who strive to live gender identities that fit. So you could argue if you're gender non-binary, you could just go into both the men and women sections of a clothing store, but it's a market. And uh, again, if it's a market, there are uh, opportunities, different companies are focusing on it. Also, the New York Times had this article, Mattel, which is the company that makes the Barbie doll, <clears throat> debuted gender neutral dolls. And so these dolls uh, come with um, both sort of, um, I guess you would say traditionally boys and traditionally girls um, clothing. Uh, so you don't have to buy 
the outfits um, separately, you can get them in the same box. I also want to point out an interesting thing I've seen. I collect uh, picture books for children that uh, focus on children um, who are being raised either by same-sex parents or the kids themselves are LGBTQ. And what I find is that the books for children about lesbian and gay topics often focus on the sexual orientation of the parents. Heather has two mommies, daddy's wedding, um, and so on. Whereas books for children about transgender issues usually focus on the children and foreground appearance. So here are books like Sparkle Boy, Jacob's New Dress, Pink is for Boys, um, and so on. Very interesting. I haven't seen books yet for kids who have transgender parents. So in conclusion, the um, terminology about gender and sexual minorities has changed over time and changes across culture, uh, but will continue to evolve. So it's very important for clinicians and researchers to familiarize themselves with the latest trends, especially among youth, given that appearance plays a big role. When gender and sexual minorities are first coming out, their knowledge of appearance norms plays an important role. They have to know what people look like and what they need to look like to attract others. Nevertheless, a gender expression should not be confused with sexual orientation. Just because someone looks gender atypical doesn't mean that they identify as a sexual minority. And research on health and mental health should consider the intersection of gender and sexual orientation, as well as other intersectional identities. Thank you very much. I hope you all enjoyed that fabulous bonus episode. Yes, we listened back and really enjoyed it too. So a huge thank you to Esther for giving such a great keynote address at our conference and allowing us to to share it more widely and sharing it with you on the podcast. Well, as ever, thank you for listening to Appearance Matters, the podcast. Please remember to share, subscribe, rate and review. It really does help other people find the podcast and give us a little boost. It really does. And remember, you can keep up to date with our centre's work on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. All the links are in our bio. Until next time. Bye. Bye. (laughs) With your Santas waving. There's no bell, you see. I think next time I need a bell.